Suzanne. Hello. 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 How are you feeling? I'm doing all right. I'm still a little bit squeaky. Yeah. So we've kind of reversed roles this time round. I'm slightly less squeaky and you're slightly more squeaky. This is this is true. So I think we probably ought to start by saying welcome to Frithcast number eight. Welcome to Frithcast number eight. Number eight. What did you say? Episode eight. Episode eight. Episode eight. That I one. actually I actually <laughs> lost track of what you said in the microsecond it took me to try to repeat it. Okay, you need more coffee. Yeah, probably. Okay. Episode eight, where you're going to teach me. <laughs> you're you going. See, to... Whenever you start a sentence like that off, it always ends badly. <laughs> you tell, know it, and I know it. Tell me about Harris matrices. Oh no, not Harris matrices. Tell me about resistivity meters. Oh God. And magnetometry. Yes, we thought considering a lot of the evidence for the Viking peoples in their many different forms is now accessible through archaeology. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and archaeology happens to be one of my big things. It is. I originally trained as an archaeologist. So I spent many long, tiring, hard years at university learning the theme tune. The theme tune? The theme tune. We have a theme tune. Did you not know? We have, like, entrance music. Archaeology has a theme tune. Archaeology has a theme tune. Okay. Do you know You know the theme tune? I probably will when you start. Is that done? da 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 what? Because otherwise we'll get nodded for copyright. Oh yeah, sorry, copyright. And Can't do the copyright I... thing. But that's the theme tune. And awesome. it took me a very long time at university to be able to learn that mm-hmm. in key and in time and mostly with all the right notes in the right places. And that's the same, that's basically the important bit. It's that's that's the fundamental part of this science. Before they before <laughs> they give you a one of them little axy things. Yes. A brush. Yeah. Before all of that. Mm. Archaeology 101, you learn the theme tune. Absolutely. You're in there. Yeah. So what I thought we'd talk about this episode is we'd talk a little bit about how archaeology works in the UK, mm-hmm. where you can find some of the archaeological information and reports specifically relating to the Viking peoples and them coming into the UK. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the Viking sites that are out there so you know you've got a place to start yep. looking for information. So the base of archaeology, the base of all archaeology, is that it's the study of people. Mm -hmm. So you can either have historical archaeology, which is the study of people within the period of written records, within history, or you can have prehistoric, which is pre-written records. So you will find archaeologists specialising in a huge amount of subjects and getting very, very enthusiastic about the smallest little details. Archaeologists will often use superlatives, Okay. The biggest, the best, the most complex site ever. Right. Because what they're trying to do is make sure that their 
their site goes up in the press releases or goes up in the academic records as the best bestest bit ever of whatever it is uh, every archaeological site is unique every single site there isn't one site that is an exact copy of another. Even when you get to Roman forts and you dig a corner of a Roman fort and you can pace out where the other corners are precisely, yeah. that Roman fort will not be identical to any other Roman fort you've ever dug. Every they might, they, single site is a unique experience. They had a rough a rough common floor plan, but they would still have been... Uh, they would still have been forced to change things by circumstance. And... Yes, yeah, or yeah. you've got different artefacts that you find there. Mm, yeah. There are several different techniques that archaeologists will use, and one of them is digging holes in the ground. It isn't everything that an archaeologist will do. Okay. They might try and match historical records to what activity there was on that site. They might look at small finds in what they call field walking, which is where you walk up and down a ploughed field and you pick out pieces of pottery that the ploughs turned up from underneath the ground. Mm. So you might do a field walking exercise in a ploughed field to find evidence of Roman pottery or evidence of medieval pottery that will help you understand, it will build up a, a picture of what that site looks like. So when archaeology as a science started, they were interested in digging holes in the ground and they were primarily interested in metal art, uh, metal artefacts coming out. I believe I'm probably being a little unfair, but if I'm remembering rightly, essentially as a as a field, it grew from initially the the, the desire to find and recover treasure, basically. Yes, Victorian gentry yeah. originally started the science of archaeology by trying to find sites and towns and cities mentioned in the Bible. Okay. And it then developed and spread into other countries, into other areas, until they started realising that Britain was also full of history Mm. and they ought to try and record it. Being Victorian, they had a very different concept of what needed recording and how they would record it than we do now. Now we understand that essentially archaeology comes in layers. So you have the surface of the earth. Oh, like an ogre. Like an ogre. Yes. Or parfait. Or parfait. Mm-hmm. Also good. Like trifle, only different. I want trifle now. I know. They're there. Okay. So like trifle or parfait, maybe not quite like ogres coming in layers, but like trifle or parfait, you've got layers of things going down. So on a cake, you have a top layer of cake and then a bottom layer. Um, if you're really lucky, there's a third layer underneath. Archaeology is the same. So you're looking at the ground surface where we stand now mm-hmm. and... In general theory, the further down you dig, or you excavate, or you survey, the further back in time you're going. That so you is the fairly. There are some exceptions to that, but that's the fairly standard rule. So you start out with <clears throat> your surface layer of earth and stuff that we have, and you'll find like fast food wrappers and yeah, tin cans all nineteenth-century mug handles, Victorian dumping underneath. Well, then that. I was going to go down to the next layer down where you get like Victorian pots and all that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, God, yes. Yes, you get lots of Victorian pottery. Then you get a thick and luxurious <clears throat> layer of buttermilk. Possibly. And um, maybe one of sponge. And then and then a little bit... And then you're down into the sort of the interesting stuff, the, the, <clears throat> the kind of thick cheesecake layer of the Romans. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm on drugs. The legal kind, we hasten of, to add. I'm on lots of drugs. The legal sort, yes, yeah. absolutely. But cold, anyway. cold and flu medicine, I'm, not I'm just, anything else, thank you very much. I was trying to do a confectionery <laughs> analogue 
for layering yes. strata. <clears throat> yes, strata. So those layers, an archaeologist will call contexts, and they will go from ground level down through the layers, and you will use where you might find that the soil changes, or you might find you're suddenly getting a different age of finds, and that's when you know you've come down into another band, if okay. you like. This is a, a, a sort of a rough five-minute guide to how archaeology oh, works, yeah. so it can get a little bit more complex. Aside from looking at historical records and aside from field walking, you can do site surveys with machines that will essentially do a, like a ground-penetrating radar that you can set to a certain depth and take a reading along a horizontal layer anywhere up to sort of two metres under the ground. So you can set it at sort of half a metre and then a metre, and then one and a half metres, and then two metres, and end up with horizontal slices under where your feet are without ever having to dig. Because digging... How very Star Trek. How very Star Trek. It takes a little bit longer than Star Trek. Um, Many things do. Digging is fantastic, and it's an awesome way to get a lot of data out of the ground, but it's destructive. Okay. As you dig the site up, you destroy it. Digging it up. You're digging it up. Mm, mm. So you only get one shot at it. You only get one chance to dig it all up right. So archaeologists tend to stay away from the digging if they can. They tend to do other things first and then look at putting a trench in. Where archaeological material tends to end up now is in archives, in places like museums. And they will, in a lot of modern sites, you will look at publishing a report. So there will be a clause, a proviso, that if you dig this site, you have to publish the results. Mm. For a lot of reports, they don't make hugely glossy, spectacular reading because it's a hole in the ground. Well, yeah. To a lot of members of the public, it's a hole in the ground that some very strange people are getting very excited over, (laughs) which I can now see from both sides. The information in those archaeological reports often doesn't reach places like public libraries. Okay. You can find some of it online, but you're liable to find a lot of it in academic libraries Mm. if it gets published at all. And if it doesn't, you'd be looking at going to the unit that did the excavation and asking for their excavation records. Okay, got very excited there because I thought you meant go to unit. (laughs) Not that unit, no. Shame. So the information that you gain from archaeological digs or from surveys can be a bit tricky to track down but there are some key sites that I want to have a chat about some Viking key sites where the information is online or it's very publicly accessible and you can go and look at it cool so where are we going first well the first place I want to look at is something called the portable antiquity scheme right which is a an agreement a national agreement with Uh, people like metal detectorists or members of the public that if they find a thing Mm -hmm. they can take it into their local museum and ask for it to be photographed and catalogued and then they will get the thing back whatever it is so this might include things like coins Mm -hmm. it might include things like buckles from horse harnesses or from armor or in very very rare occasions you find hordes Okay. Exceptionally rare occasions you get hordes. This being a big <clears throat> bunch of something that... This being a big bunch of something, and in the case of the Vikings, it tends to be a lot of Arabic coinage. Okay. Arabic dirhams tend to form a basis of quite a few hordes, and they are usually accompanied by what they call hack silver, which is where they've taken arm rings or coinage and they're cutting them into halves or into quarters because a lot of their trade is done by weight. 
so they're only interested in how how much by weight literally how much volume of, of silver they've got how uh, much, uh, not volume <clears throat> mass of silver how much mass of silver rather than how many individual coins they have yeah so you will find merchant scales there's a lot of lovely examples of Viking merchant scales. There's a lovely box from Sigtuna, and I'll put the link into the description. If you imagine like a metal ball and it splits in the middle and unlocks and you have two halves, those become the pans for the scales and inside you've got the chains and the bar that they can then hang up and measure. You've got hack silver or silver in one side and whatever item is on the other side. Now, I think you've told me about this before. Tell me, is this the one that has a particularly awesome anti-theft device? It does have a particularly awesome anti-theft device. It has the immobiliser of the Viking Age uh-huh. is written on the Sigtuna box, and it has a runic inscription round the outside that would caution any potential light-fingered person and say, if you nick my box, if you nick my scales, the ravens will come and take your eyes out. Which... It's it's all I love the Sigtuna box for that. It's yeah. just scratched around the outside of one of the the pans. I want to talk a little bit about some of the the sites in the UK. Okay. Uh, the archaeological sites. I want to first go over to Anglesey. Anglesey, which, which is, north end of? Yeah, it's an island off the north west coast of Wales, mm-hmm. and there you have a number of Viking arm rings that have been found and a really fabulous set of 9th century defences. It's a little bit different. In the 9th century in the UK, you've got a period of fairly big turmoil because the Vikings come over in what gets listed in the records as the Great Army. Right. Now, they arrive in at various points in the UK and they find the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that are here very disorganised. And they don't find an awful lot of resistance when they start kind of expanding and settling in and taking over bits and pieces. Hmm. And they eventually settle in the middle of the country that they call the Danelaw. So what you have are a lot of sites around the middle of the country, sites in Lincolnshire, in Derbyshire, in Yorkshire, that are very heavily Viking influenced because of the great army that came in and that was the area that they were around. Hmm. You have... Three sites at Repton and Torxey and a place called Ingleby. Torxey is particularly interesting because essentially you'd got an army of a good couple of thousand people. You would have had essentially a, a fairly good, huge sized settlement with that number of people. But now the Torxey is actually now a village. It's a tiny little thing. Okay. It's a, not like this a great current, big... A current, a current small village. Yeah. It's a current small village. So this huge big town just vanishes. Okay. And we get little tiny village. And it didn't sort of proportionally grow? It never proportionally grew, it never increased. It's quite a strange site because you get medieval villages that disappear, it's very small settlements, but this is a whole town. This is a huge space. So the site at Ingleby, you have Viking cremations. Okay. Viking cremation burials. There's lots of different ways the Viking people deal with their dead. And Ingleby has Viking cremation sites. If you go up to Scar, which is on Orkney, you actually have a boat burial with a man, woman and child in it. Okay. Which you can then very much compare to burials like the burial at Sutton Hoo, which, while it's Anglo-Saxon, shows a completely different style of burial. Again, because the one at Scar is buried in a rowing boat. 
right. tiny little thing. Whereas Sutton Hoo is... Sutton Hoo is a dirty great big ship. A warship. Essentially, it's a huge, huge ship which has, they think, has a single male burial in it, but because the soil is acidic, it's taken away a lot of the organic remains. We don't ever know whether there's a body ever buried in there. There are theoretical guesses mm. as to who it might have been because there is some really nice kit in Sutton Hoo. If we stay up in Orkney for a minute, what you have up in Orkney are combs. Mm-hmm. And a Viking-style comb is commonly made out of antler or bone plates that are then riveted together and it has a ridge back and teeth at the, the end. And you remember Ibn Fadlan says they comb their hair every day. So you can probably infer from that that a lot of people own a comb. Okay. And what you get up in Orkney is that they will make Pictish-style combs, but they will make them out of red deer antler mm. because that's the local material. And when you get Viking combs, they're currently made out of reindeer antler right. because they're coming from northern Europe. Where there are more reindeer. Where there are more reindeer. Yeah. So they will make them out of reindeer antler and you know, presumably bring across a comb with them in the Viking style made out of reindeer antler. Mm. What you have up in Orkney is Pictish-style combs made in reindeer antler. Okay. So you know that they're probably bringing across raw antler and trading it to the people in in the Orkneys, Mm. who are then making combs in their own individual style out of somebody else's material in preference to using red deer antler. Okay. I can't really do a a zoom around some of the sites in the UK. It's not all of them, because we don't have time, Mm. without mentioning the site of York. Viking city of Yorvik. The lovely, lovely York. The lovely, lovely York. Yorvik isn't the only Viking, heavily Viking settled town in the UK. You've also got Dublin, Mm -hmm. uh, just over the Irish Sea. In Ireland. In Ireland. Um, You've also got, between England and Ireland, there's a wee little tiny island called the Isle of Man. There is. And there's a site on there called the Braid. Mm -hmm. And there you have the remains of two Viking longhouses. Now, the Isle of Man is also a little bit awesome because it still has what they call a thing. Um, And this is not like, you know, thing one and thing two and the cat and the hat (laughs) thing. It's a different kind of thing. Is that even a thing? Is that even a thing? Um, The thing in this case is called the thing place they also still have one up in in iceland okay which was essentially the annual meeting for all the settlements to go to this particular place and to trade to hear stories to settle legal disputes it was a great big annual meeting a moot a big big moot Hmm. the isle of man still has a thing place and they still hold their an annual ceremonial government it's seat their there it? it's their parliament seat is e- the thing place which is a hangover from when the norse came and settled the island hmm. the last site i want to zoom around today mm-hmm. is uh one down in ridgeway in dorset okay so and this is south coast of the uk We've been exceptionally hot, exceptionally north. Now we're going. Exceptionally no, we're going south. exceptionally south. The Ridgeway in Dorset is a very unique site, but I'm an archaeologist and I can use superlatives like a good one. Yeah. So. Like the best one. Like the bestest one ever. <laughs> I can use those superlatives all over the place. The site at Ridgeway is, is yes, it's a unique site. But the impression that a lot of people have is that the Vikings come over to Britain and they basically bulldoze the local people and they come in, they take land, they settle, they have a great army, they're incredibly brutal warriors. 
the, the Viking Age is not for the squeamish. Looting and pillaging and all that. All of that of stuff. kind of yeah. stuff. The Ridgeway in Dorset tells a slightly different story. Okay. Um, the Ridgeway in Dorset site is a, an old quarry site. It's a burial ground, but it's not a burial ground where people have been laid with reverence and given grave goods and there may have been ceremony to them. This is a, a site where bodies have been just dumped okay. haphazardly thrown in. And what you have is a a place where you have 54 bodies, all male, all most of them under 30. Right. There are a couple of exceptions. Now, the very marked thing about this particular site is that all 54 bodies have no heads. Ah. They are all headless. Oh, um, now, can I hazard a guess at the cause of death? You can. Was it having no heads? They might have had something to do with it. Okay. Yeah. These are 54 male corpses, and they're all thrown into a heap. Now, the theory is that 54 men would have been the crew of a a longboat. Ah. A Viking longboat, because you would have 25 pairs of oars, plus another couple. Plus a few for admin. Plus a few for admin, Hmm. and tea making, and sandwiches, and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, do they have... Is there any sort of other Viking characteristics in... Have they been found in... I mean, are the clothes, are the... There's not a lot. No? Which leads them to theorise that the bodies were probably plundered. Ah. And all the shinies were taken off them. Right. The really, really squeamish part... This is where the podcast gets R-rated, then. This is where we R-rate this particular part of the podcast. Mm. There are some skulls in a pile. Okay. On the same site, fairly close to the pile of bodies, mm-hmm. you've got a pile of 51 skulls. 51? 51. Okay, so we've sought a debit of three. Yeah, we, we might have missed a couple mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle of things. But the theory is sort of harking back to the earlier perception that the Vikings came in and just kind of brutally swept out through the land and mangled everything. Basically, they won. Vikings won. Vikings won. The site at Ridgeway, in theory, tells us a slightly different story, that the Anglo-Saxons were equally good at warfare, Mm. found this Viking longboat crew and murdered them, decapitated all of them and dumped their bodies in a quarry and then rifled through for all the shinies. Okay. So it's kind of, it changes the perception of what was going on at the time. That was the last site I wanted to talk about today. So we'll put some of the links for some of the information into the description of the podcast. So if yep. you want to go and have a, a zoom around some of the sites or look at the Portable Antiquity Scheme. So I think we'll leave it there for today. Mm-hmm. If you want to find me online... Indeed. You can find me on Facebook as Suzanne Martin. So we will talk to you next time. Indeed. Bye-bye.